John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. Four and a half years ago, John and I sat down in my living room to record the very first episode of The Cinephiles. Four and a half months ago, I came up with the idea that instead of doing our usual Q&A, we should celebrate our 200th episode with an actual video documentary exploring the history of the show and conversations with some of our favorite guests on our mutual love of movies. Now, John liked the idea, so we recorded some interviews, and I started cutting. Two and a half months ago, it was time to release that documentary. After all, it's only natural for episode 200 to come immediately after episode 199. Unfortunately, the fact is I had bitten off a little more than I could chew. I mean, I knew that editing a documentary was very different from editing a podcast, but that turned out to be a bit of an understatement. But today... I am very happy to announce that The Cinephile's 200th episode spectacular is officially finished, or, okay, almost finished, and we will be releasing it in all its glory on our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com slash C slash The Cinephiles. That's youtube.com slash C slash The Cinephiles. And yes, for those of you who subscribe to our regular podcast feed, there will be an audio-only version of the show. But I'm telling you, for this one, there is nothing like video. After all, listening to the show means missing out on seeing the actual faces of some of our favorite guests. People like the brilliant Scott Mance, Sasha Pearl Raver at her uncensored best, Geek Buddies, Michael Vogel and Shannon McClung, our resident NASA expert, Dave Rapp, the hilarious Michael Ross, animator and comic book artist, Stephen B. Jones, and last, but certainly not least, my favorite cinephile, Karen P. Morris. You'll even get to meet a few of our most important supporters on Patreon. Now, this is truly something completely different for the cinephiles, and if you're a fan of the show, I have a feeling this is one you definitely don't want to miss. So, that's the often delayed but highly anticipated Cinephiles 200th episode spectacular, available this Friday on our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com slash C slash The Cinephiles. The fact is, cinephiles, 
I'm real proud of this one, and I can't wait for you to see it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the audio-only edition of the Cinephile's 200th episode spectacular. And when I say audio-only, I mean it, because right now, for the first time ever, you can actually watch John and I, along with some of our favorite guests, talk about the podcasts and the movies that made us who we are. So, of course, you're welcome to listen to the show here, but if you want the full experience, I highly recommend a visit to our YouTube page, www.youtube.com slash C slash The Cinephiles. That's youtube.com slash C slash The Cinephiles. Trust me, this is unlike anything we've ever done before, and we can't wait for you to watch it. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey, hello everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here on The Outlaw Nation and co-host of The Cinephiles and voiceover guy and excited uh, to get into our 200th episode, Steve. My God, I did not know or did not think we were going to get here ever. And uh, it's been amazing to be here now at the 200th episode. Well, and we're celebrating this 200th episode by doing something we have never done before, which yeah. is the Cinephiles is on camera. So if you are listening to us in our regular audio feed on the podcast, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. We hope you enjoy it. But you can actually watch this video and see the faces of not only John and I, but all of our favorite guests. And we're even going to be visited by some of our most important fans and supporters of the Cinephiles on Patreon. Because without you all who are the fans, there's no way this show gets to 200 episodes. So thank you. And it'll be exciting for you all to revisit and spend some more time with some of our best guests who've ever been on the show. And to start off, I think we're going to go way back in time to long before <laughs> the beginning of the Cinephiles, long before we ever had an idea of doing a podcast. And we're going to go to a strange dive sports bar in Hollywood <laughs> called Big Wangs to find out how the cinephiles came into existence. Do I think there's a connection between Big Wangs, the cinephiles, and even the Geek Buddies? 100%. I don't think there is a cinephiles without Big Wangs. Big Wangs is, <laughs> is a place... Uh, here that used to be here in Los Angeles. Um, it was a sports bar, great tater tots. Like we have this intellectual, deep, complicated show that can't possibly exist without this divey sports bar in the middle of Hollywood. And it's just about two blocks away from uh, Arclight Cinemas and the Cinerama Dome. So it kind of makes it the ideal spot to go for a drink and some boneless spicy chicken wings after a night at the movies. Great chicken wings. As long as we went to Big Wang's, we were always talking about movies. And chugging down a drink, which I kid you not, is called a Wang Banger. Go to Big Wang's, do some Wang Bangers, which is the signature shot. And a Wang Banger is one of those things where it's a shot glass that you drop into, you know, another drink. Like, I don't know what was in it. It had like Southern Comfort and vodka and orange juice and some sort of, probably Red Bull, some sort of energy drink. And basically get super drunk, have chicken wings, and then yell and argue about movies. For the crew of us out here in Los Angeles, and Steve Morris and I being part of this crew, 
and numerous guests of the cinephiles it was a place we'd go to after a movie and there's something that like my little gay soul just loved about being in the middle of a sports bar where everybody else was watching some kind of sporting event and we were arguing about who would beat someone in a fight, Batman versus Superman, or what they could have done to make The Hangover that much of a better, funnier movie. I think maybe if we had been able to record some of those conversations, uh, we, we, we could maybe have some great ideas, or maybe the ideas could be terrible. The memories are a little fuzzy. And I came to think of this weird sports bar as like a magical place. It was a very special place for our group of friends in that time. And I think we just kind of threw around this idea of, wouldn't it be fun to take this conversation and turn it into a podcast? We came up with an idea for a show called, I don't know, what do you think? You know, John's talked about the origin of the cinephiles a whole bunch of times. And he always brings up this, I don't know, what do you think show with Jonathan Blue. I never liked that idea. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I didn't know that. All right, I'll file that away in my brain as something to remember when Steve gives you that smile, that knowing smile, that maybe he doesn't 100% uh, feel the idea you're pitching him. But we eventually found our way to the cinephile, so even if he didn't like the idea, it paved the way for an even better idea. Look, I am who I am. I am terrible at small talk. I'm not that interested in ephemera. So even though we talked about certain podcast ideas during those great conversations at Big Wang's, to me, it was like, how can we do something that's different and substantial? Yeah, that's Steve to a T. Everything has to always be substantial and mean so much. And I me, I just wanted to hang out together and talk about movies. And of course, in the end, that's what we eventually got to. And I think uh, it has been substantial ever since. Part of the origins of the cinephiles, frankly, comes out of my depression. You know, I made this film, The Assistance. I'm super proud of it. It did really well in festivals. And then because of a totally unscrupulous salesperson who just basically lied to us and never tried to sell the film, it just died. And what was so horrible about it is that it, it's not that it didn't succeed because it's a bad film, in my opinion. I think it's a good film, but we just couldn't get it to the audience. And then I made this Great White Shark film. Mike Hoover has spent much of the last decade filming The Great Whites. And while his intention is to demystify the animal, the realities of the entertainment industry have put him in an almost impossible position. You see, there's only one real way to sell a shark show, teeth. So we had this huge sale in Europe. It was seen by millions of people, but I couldn't get it to play in my own country. And I was just really bummed. And I was going like, well, what am I going to do? And I was a huge fan of John in the top 10 show. It was so great that Steve became one of the first fans who were my friends. Not that my other friends weren't supportive, but Steve made time. At a time when I was still building my confidence in what I was doing, it was great to know that a person whose opinion I respect was actually listening and uh, appreciating what we were doing on the show. And let's be real clear. No, I didn't have any followers on Twitter. Nobody was interested in coming to hear what Steve Morris had to say, but they were interested in coming to see, hear what the outlaw had to say. And there was no question in my mind that I was going to use my good friend John's popularity to help launch the show. Now, that doesn't mean I did, did it just for that reason. I knew he was good. I had listened to him many, many times on Top Ten Show. And of course, I'd had all these great conversations with him at Big Wangs and other places talking about film. And for me, it was so different than everything else I've been doing. Because I was doing these recap shows and I was doing you know shows about movies. The Top Ten Show was about movies, but counting them down. And I think the very first choice that was really important was to make sure that the movies had stood the test of time, which became our 10-year rule. This was a chance to really sit down with one movie 
and dissect it and dive into it and talk about the themes and everything else. And that satisfied me as a student of film, as a lover of film. I felt like this show uh, could be different. And it eventually, it did become completely different from anything else I was doing. Uh, and I've always cherished that. The evolution of the cinephiles is really, really clear. Partially it's because I, you know, I spent so much time editing the shows and I know when I made changes. You know, it's funny, the first few episodes of The Cinephiles, if people go back and listen to them, they're an hour long, <laughs> an hour and a half, just conversations about the movie. And in my opinion, our first good episode is Amadeus. Yeah, Amadeus was the one. Amadeus, uh, for whatever reason, that's the one that clicked. Something clicked when we did Amadeus, and it was where we figured out that we could talk more deeply about film. And I remember that was the episode where I saw for the first time what the show had the possibility to be. When I was editing Amadeus, I kept hearing that opening classical Mozart music. We have our kind of fun cinephiles music, and that's how we opened every show. And Amadeus, I was like, I can't open the show with that music. I have to open it with Mozart. I remember the first time I put Amadeus on in the car, the, our, our episode, and I heard that opening cl clip of the song. And I immediately lost my mind in that moment because I thought it was so brilliant to do that. And it immediately separated this show from anything I was doing at the time or would do later. And ever since, he started every show with either a, a clip from a scene in the movie or a song or something from the score or the soundtrack that immediately puts you in the vibe of the film. And we've got you at that point, And you're with us on this ride in the cinephiles. I started to hear, rather than hearing me say a line or John say a line, I was like, well... If we're talking about this thing, I want to hear the line. If we say this person's performance is great, well, I want to hear the great performance. And music, finished as no music is ever finished. This plays one note, and there would be diminishment. This plays one phrase, and the structure would fall. If we say this music cue in a film is really powerful, well, I wanted to hear the music cue. There is a string quartet that's playing at the party. Yeah. And they're playing all sorts of classical music. When Hans is coming up the elevator and we come first to the party and they enter, yeah. what piece of music are they playing? They're playing Ode to Joy. Wow. When Hans is in the elevator with uh, Takagi and he's yeah. humming, what is he humming? <laughs> Humming Ode to Joy. <laughs> the the next big one, I think, was The Shining, where and that's where John and I, I think started pushing each other. That was when I first started to understand that I could play within the parameters of the show and start to challenge Steve. And his surprise was great, you know, because you can rarely catch Steve. Uh, uh, you rarely catch him out. And when you can, it's a, it's a fun conversation usually. I want to ask you about The Shining. Do you believe in this kind of thing? Do you think this thing is possible? Obviously, there's ESP, people who are psychics, that kind of jazz. Do you think this is possible? This communication between mental energies without speaking. I did not expect to be answering this question. <laughs> the really good episodes are ones where we have conversations beyond the film. Apocalypse Now was a huge episode because it was such a mess. 
before then, our episodes were very much jumping around the movie. Like we'd be in this scene, then we'd jump to a scene at the end, then we'd have to later on think of a thing that we hadn't said about the scene earlier, and then we'd jump back. And it was that episode that made me start to go, oh, we should talk about this in some kind of chronological order. And I just love reliving the film as you guys discuss it. Uh, it's almost as enjoyable as watching the film itself. That's when the cinephiles really took shape. And it was this, and it was born out of this feeling that um, there was more to talk about. And if we had a regimented approach to the show, then we'd be able to talk about everything we want to talk about with the movie because it would come up organically as these scenes were presented. West Side Story. And then we did West Side Story. I don't remember what was going on in my life, but like I just wasn't on the ball. That one was an incredible episode to be a part of because we brought in two incredibly talented and knowledgeable people about music and about musicals like David Cornu and Milena Govich and had them break down the songs and the dances and the choreography and Howard mirrored for a man who loves this movie because it speaks to me as a lover of musicals, but also because you've got Latinos represented in this movie in a powerful way. It was a whole new way to appreciate the film. And again, the episode, which I'm really, I think it's a really good episode, really hard to edit. And that's where I started to go, okay, I need to write down every single thing that happens in the movie. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to be a mess. West Side Story, it it has brilliant music. It's brilliant story. It's brilliant writing. It's brilliant choreography. Together, they all transcend all those individual genres. When Scott Mance came on The Cinephiles to do Wrath of Khan... I think that is a watershed moment in the show. Guys, thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here to talk about the one thing that I love talking about more than anything. Really? And that is you, Roka. What? No, <laughs> you! Having Scott Mance take the time and the chance on a fledgling podcast like ours because of our friendship meant so much to me. I felt like these guys were kindred spirits to me. And I could have gone on for five hours instead of three because I loved how committed they were to doing a deep dive into a film scene by scene, moment by moment. It was no longer a podcast or an episode. We became those nerdy kids who are 12 years old in their parents' basement just talking about the love of something that they are super deep into. Hey guys, this is Todd from Maine. And I'm here to talk about my favorite episode of The Cinephiles, which is the episode on The Wrath of Khan. I'm super biased because I've loved this movie as long as I can remember. Uh, and that's kind of why this episode is so special to me. It feels the most like a conversation that I would have with my dad. That's the gift of Scott Mance. Scott Mance can make you feel like you've been friends with him for 30 years. What I remember when I left was I really hope they asked me back. <laughs> Star Trek. Star Trek 2. Star Trek 2. The Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan, yeah. which is, as we all know, widely hailed as the greatest Star Trek movie of them all. Absolutely. The Citizen Kane of Star <laughs> Trek movies. Then we did the month of Kane. Maybe one of the greatest months of my life. No lie. First of all, it created this tradition, which is the first month of every new year, we're going to focus on a director and do a deep dive into their work. I love Orson Welles so much and being able to share it with Steve and talk about it with Steve, who's also a massive Orson Welles fan, was uh, so 
satisfying. And uh, it's like satisfying a thirst. It's the first time we split a movie into two parts because I just it wasn't possible to fit it all in one. And we were really scared that the audience would reject that. I had a strange confidence about it that it wouldn't be an issue because I think once you do something really well, people will come back for it and you leave them wanting more. That's the number one thing of an entertainer. And one lesson you learn is to always leave them wanting more. And so that's what sort of freed us up to do these bigger episodes was like, oh, people are actually okay with doing three hours of conversation about a two-hour film. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, it's... We enter the... I don't know, man. What? What's going on? I don't know. Do we enter a world of a great film? Yes, we are entering the world of a great film. Is that film. what we're doing today? Yes, we are doing that today. You want to tell them what the movie is? Yes. Welcome, everybody. Uh, well, first, that's Steve Morris. I'm John Roca, and we are talking about Armageddon today. Woo, baby. Armageddon. That was the one. Armageddon is the first movie we did where we felt really differently about it, and it ended up being one of the most fun episodes we ever did. Steve was like, well, let's tackle a film that maybe isn't the greatest uh, film or what have you, and I was like, it is the greatest film. And to be really clear, and I hope people know this, I actually like Armageddon. Wait, Steve actually likes Armageddon now? I think there's some issues that need to be discussed about it. There are no issues with that film. I don't know what he's talking about. I would say after that, there are two more really transformative films that we did. One was when we did the Civil War documentary. That changed our show. That that changed our show. That challenged me in terms of how to put it together and totally changed the way I edited. I have never felt the sense of responsibility to getting an episode right more than I did for the Civil War. Because I love that documentary as much as Steve does. But it's also a very important documentary about our country's history. And I felt it was maybe the most important episode we've done in a very, very long time. I want the show to be an interesting conversation. And what I learned from the Civil War and Apollo 13 was, skip the boring parts. Jump ahead to a new cut. Let the cut propel us forward. It'll be the worst disaster NASA's ever experienced. With all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. For me, sometimes our best episodes are not from the best films. As part of a Guilty Pleasure series, we did Zorro the Gay Blade. Two fruits, one vegetable, and a fruit salad. Which is one of John's absolutely favorite movies from a certain era in his life. He loves it. I do not. The conversation we had for that episode is one of my favorites. That's one of the surprising things about the show. You never know what you're going to discover. Something where you think might be lightweight or might not have too much, uh, I don't know, too much depth to it. All of a sudden you discover there's a lot more bubbling underneath the surface. That movie led us to get into things that I think we never would have gotten into without that film. You know, I take a certain amount of pride that coming out of that episode, Steve was a little worried about doing it. And by the end of it, uh, felt that we had a fantastic episode and great discussions that were born from what is a, you know, a funny, frivolous take on Zorro that walks the line, but in the end is a positive film. Obviously, you have a well-established Latino identity, <laughs> but I also think that your love for this film shows a deep, deep affection for a certain kind of Catskills Jewish humor. Oh, yes. And I think I might give you the title of Honorary Jew. I, I, I don't know what to say. I am super honored about that. 
and I know a lot of people who watch the cinephiles, they watch it by looking through the list, picking a film that they love and listening to it. And if you see a film maybe that you not never saw, aren't interested in, you skip it. Some of those might be our best episodes. I think one of the things that's great about cinephiles and one of the things that actually inspired me and John and Shannon to go do Geek Buddies is the ability to bring your friends in and have them weigh in on their opinions. It takes this family of people who all love cinema and then expands it out to all the other great guests they've had. I know this is going to sound strange. I think Mike Vogel is the most like me guest we have on the show. As John and Shannon will tell you on the Geek Buddies, I pretty much love listening to myself talk. So definitely my favorite episodes of the Cinephiles are the ones where I'm a guest. We have to hold on because Mike will run away with the show because he has a tendency, I won't say to take over. Don't Maybe don't try to drive every time. You know, same. Go ahead, Steve. As you were saying, Steve. Maybe take that out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, leave it in. You know what? Leave it in. Yeah, leave it in. You know what? Leave it in. I'll be leaving that in. <laughs> uh, it's always a blast to have him on the show, and he loves doing the show, which makes us enjoy doing the show even more. I, I've often been asked, you know, did you go to film school? And I said, yeah, I went to film school every weekend. But gentlemen, the movie is called Blade Runner. You think the movie's about Harrison Ford? You think the movie's about Deckard? The movie... Blade Runner is about gas. Listen to this. Okay, hold on. The movie, this is a controversial right, statement. The movie Blade Runner is about Edward James Olmos. What? Gaff is the Blade Runner. The thing about Mance is that he brings such a joy to doing our show that humbles me because Scott is one of the greatest reviewers of films, one of the most knowledgeable and one of the most well-known. And for him to speak honestly and authentically about his experiences with us and how much joy he has uh, in breaking down a film with us, to me, um, um, humbles me because it makes me know that we're doing something really good. The main thing I'm looking for in an entertaining movie is not to think about how they made it. After their first table read, some assistant had gone up to Eric Stoltz and was saying, hey, this movie's going to be really great. It's going to be really, really funny. And he goes, oh, I don't think this is going to be funny at all. Oh, this really? Is, this is tragic. <laughs> He's going to go back to a life that didn't exist. And that was his... That was in his head. Wow. That was his way in, yeah. The first time Shannon McClung came on the show, I think he was nervous. The, <laughs> the main feeling I get, even now, coming on to the Cinephiles as a guest is intimidation. <laughs> Shannon's a, a very deft listener. Go, Shannon can sit for an hour and listen to us talk. And when John and I are talking, I mean, obviously with 200 episodes, we can talk a blue streak. And, and this is what happens when we, when we talk about movies at bars afterwards. We'll talk about how much we loved it, and then, the, and then the critical thinking starts. And I will just like, I'll just sit there with my mouth open, being like, God, I did not. I did not think about that at all. And some things I agree with and some things I don't. And then he'll chime in with something really unique and interesting and uh, brilliant. And we're, we're both just kind of taken aback for a moment because we've been talking for so long. And then in Back to the Future, which, is, by the way, might be the funniest episodes of the cinephiles of all time. But not as good as Perfect Strangers. No, Perfect Strangers is the best theme. That is the best that's song. the best theme song sure. from the 80s, Absolutely. period. Gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> Standing <laughs> tall on the wings of my dreams. Rise and fall on the wings of my dreams. And the best part. Through rain and thunder, wind and haze, I'm bound for better days. 
And that's what's great about Shannon. Shannon doesn't have the ego that he needs to be involved. He needs to be jumping in at every moment that he can. When Shannon jumps in and commits himself, he is awesome. You know, I went to Ferris Bueller's Day Off and came out of that movie and all of my friends were like, oh my God, that's you, you're Ferris. <laughs> and I was uh, like, no, no, that's not me. And being like, yeah, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Who would have taken the time to, <laughs> by yourself, somehow pull, yank up a body? Were there ropes? What did he do? Yeah. I don't know what he did. Yeah. He did it with the banners, and yet it's such a great visual, yeah. and you've built up so much credit with me. Yeah. I'm like, yes, okay. Because this is a man who's been dying of thirst forever, yeah. and he finally yeah. gets to the water. And he's like, he I am just... A big drink. I am taking the biggest drink. Something you would never know from listening to Dave rap on the cinephiles is that he has stage fright. I get very anxious and nervous. I have uh, uh, stage fright that's uh, been pretty bad ever since I was a little kid. We both respect Dave. Dave's literally a rocket scientist, an incredibly brilliant guy. And he brings so much intelligence and enthusiasm to every episode we do. And Dave has such a deference to our show that is so um, sweet. I can remember seeing an ad for Star Wars on TV where Luke Skywalker is is wrestling with a sand person. And I remember in my tiny child brain, I remember I think I thought he was wrestling with the Statue of Liberty. And it reminded me of the end of Planet of the Apes, which I think I'd seen on TV at that point. And then in my brain, it's just like, is all science fiction somehow related to the Statue of Liberty? All of George Miller's films, but particularly The Road Warrior, it is such an example of the rule of thirds. So often there are two things going on in the frame. You know, and usually someone's in the foreground and someone's in the background, but because of the lens he's using, they're both in focus. It's almost like he's telling the story left to right. So I've been having conversations about movies with Steve Jones since high school. I am truly a geek. Basically, we consider our friendship to just be a one long 30-year conversation. I think being a, a geek is unabashedly loving something to the degree that you don't care how it makes you look. If I love a friend, I'm, I love them unabashedly and unreservedly. If I love a person, it's the same way. My children, like, I don't really believe in trying to look cool when it comes to the things that I love. And so having him come on the cinephiles, to me, is just like an extension of what we've been doing since we were kids. Like, hello, Twister. What did I learn from Twister? Don't chase a tornado. And that can be a metaphorical tornado. That can be an actual tornado. Like, these are things that you have to learn. Every night before we went to bed, he had to talk to me and then be like, I love you. I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, but nothing? Friend zoned so hard. Oh, and I'm see. a girl. Yeah. I have Willy Wonka's golden ticket to the fuck factory, <laughs> a vagina. And I <laughs> could Please, not. Someone make that a shirt. I think Sasha Pearl Raver is one of um, the best guests we've had on the show. I think it's always just been something where perhaps my passion was a little too unbridled. And all the walls are down, and we're talking about the nuttiest, craziest things. That's what's so great about the cinephiles, is that we can have a great conversation about complicated issues based on what's happening in the film, and Sasha was just the best for that. I think we talked about anal sex with Sasha Pearl Raber, so whoever thought we'd talk about that on an episode where we break down a film. <laughs> I am never, I'm never getting on this show. I'm just going to have to look at it from the back. That's fine. I'll look at it from the back row. I'll just be a fan. <laughs> 
Hello and welcome once again to the Cinephiles, where we have survived stomach viruses, sick kids, difficult travel plans, stressful holiday parties, and New Year's Eve, and oh my god, nobody survived. <laughs> oh, Jesus, what is wrong with you, <laughs> Michael Ross? You you missed one thing in my in my credits. Super super fan of the Cinephiles. He is calmly trying to have a conversation with us as we're careening to our deaths, uh, Thelma and Louise style, and I love it. Here we go. It's the most challenging. It is the most funny. The most unpredictable. Oh, no, no, no. It was a joke. No, it was a joke. Totally a joke. I am never more alive doing a cinephile show than I am with Mike Ross because I have no idea what he's going to say, what to expect. I sit you in that clockwork orange chair, and I'm just like, we did uh, Christmas Vacation. I, that show felt completely out of control. <laughs> and then I listened to the show. That show is so funny. How? Really? I'm like, oh, oh, maybe I am a cinephile. That's the thing as an artist, that if you can make one person feel anything close to that, I mean, you got to feel like you're doing something important. I think this is all part of that same problem that we're dealing with, you know, the media taking the place of journalism, you know, of entertainment taking the place of news, sensationalism taking the place of truth. I try to be objective as an editor and to really evaluate things for their quality. And I really think Karen was a great guest. I enjoyed having Karen on the show. Well, hey, because she's, the, you know, she's the other half of Steve Morris. And those of you who listen to the show know that my conversations with Karen definitely inform what I say on the cinephiles. Her opinion matters to me. I think Karen is an, an essential part of the cinephiles in a, in a phantom way. Quite frankly, she puts up with the bullshit of the cinephiles in a way that is very generous and is not always very easy. So thank you, Karen. And look. Everyone's got that one movie that when they saw it, whether in a theater or at home, the one movie that got inside them and changed them and started them down that path of becoming a cinephile. My dad being a military man, he's not the most, um, he's not a cold guy, but he's not a, he's not a sharer. We lived on the base. My father was in the Navy. So on all the bases, there's a little base, you know, Navy base theater. And I'd never been to the Navy theater. And I remember walking up the steps and thinking, where are we? And as we walked in, it was right at the beginning of the Battle of Hoth. My dad took me and a friend of mine to go see the first Naked Gun. Just going in and just being surrounded for like my, you know, five, six-year-old eyes. I was just enthralled. It was like, just, I remember laughing. I like remember becoming an adult in cinema. And so suddenly I'm in the Battle of Hoth and I'm with my dad. Naked Gun in particular was kind of like the first, like with my dad was like this. He trusts me, like he trusts me and I became a man. And I understand this, you know? Not only was I getting to see this movie that I had, that I had loved, but I was doing it with the most important guy in my life. That's, that was, that's a, that's a pretty good memory for me. E.T., in San Francisco. I saw that movie eight and a half times in the theater. That was probably the first time I ever experienced a movie as an event. Seeing a film that had characters that were about my age that I felt like reflected like this ultimate version of what my life could be if my best friend came down from space. 
and being able to connect so deeply with every single character on screen. And that was really, I feel like, the first moment where everything changed. One of the first movies that I remember loving was a movie that made me feel like there was more going on, that there could be more. And it's as dorky as it is, it's The Wizard of Oz. My parents took me to movies all the time, but I think the the first time that my mind was truly blown, which was not great for my dad, was the first time that I saw Labyrinth on the big screen. And it's weird because it's a movie I've never seen in the theater. I was obsessed with that movie. The change from black and white to color and seeing the change from reality to fantasy. Jim Henson creature effects, my first exposure to David Bowie and the MC Escher type look of everything. It hit all my buttons in exactly the right spot. As a kid, just, you know, didn't know that the stuff I have blurry visions of in my head and my imagination could be crisp and clear and amazing. And it wasn't great for my dad because I think I made him take me to see that movie nine times in the movie theater. Poor dad. For almost everyone of my generation, of course, there's Star Wars. I know a lot of people from my generation will say the obvious answer is, oh my God, I couldn't wait to see Star Wars. The visual experience of seeing Star Wars, I think probably is a lot of what led me into wanting to work in a visual medium and become, you know, a comic book artist and a storyboard artist. And then when you saw the Star Destroyer fly over, it was like, oh my God. And then from the top of the screen, we have Leia's little ship, you know, pew, 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 and the lasers coming in. That wasn't my first mind-blowing experience. My first mind-blowing experience going to a movie took place a year earlier when I saw the Dino De Laurentiis production of King Kong. <laughs> King Kong with Jet Bridges introducing Jessica Lang and Charles Grodin as an oil tycoon. And when you see King Kong climb to the top of what was then the brand new World Trade Center, and when he's getting shot at by those helicopters, I, I got so upset. I, I felt so bad for Kong. That was an absolutely mind-blowing moment that, as you can tell, ladies and gentlemen, I still remember like it was yesterday. In 1976, I'm eight years old, and we go to downtown Tiburon to the Tiburon Playhouse, which is a tiny little movie theater, and the movie we watched is Rocky. When he says, yo, Adrian in the ring, as an eight-year-old kid, I was crying. You know, it's like, I, I always knew I wanted to watch stuff, but they were all entertainments. And then going like, oh, art can tap into this emotional place in my body. That's completely different. I think I was seven years old and the movie was Pinocchio. I remember just the imagery and the, the donkey scene, the whale, everything about the animation, Jiminy Cricket, falling in love with Jiminy Cricket, the songs. And I remember just kind of like as a zombie walking up to my bedroom uh, and just sitting there and just thinking about the whole movie and just wondering about the power of film. I don't think I knew I was different. It's sometimes hard to become aware of where you are because that's just where you are. I think that I knew movies were more important than most of the people in my old life really, really early on. Watching films was affecting me emotionally in a way that it wasn't seeming to uh, affect my friends. Everybody loves Star Wars. 
everybody loved Indiana Jones, but being able to discuss it in a certain level of detail that was not widely widely shared. I kind of thought that everybody kind of took in what they were looking at the same. You know, you'd be out on the playground and you'd be on a jungle gym and that would be the Millennium Falcon. And I remember correcting someone because they were on the wrong side of the jungle gym to be in the cockpit. It's like, no, 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 that's the, you gotta be on the other, you gotta be on the other side, Ryan. I, I grew up in Philadelphia, Northeast Philadelphia, and all, all my friends were, were big, big, huge sports fans. We all played street hockey. We played two-touch football. And just full disclosure, I was horrible at all of it. <laughs> and that's also the time when I started to obsessively read and reread comic books and fantasy novels and watch movies over and over again because, you know, I didn't really have any friends. And I think the realization for me that I had a relationship with cinema that transcended everything in my life came in 1982, specifically in June of 1982. I stayed home from school because I was sick and uh, my mother had gone to Video World. I had asked for The Great White Hope. I asked for Citizen Kane. And that's when I first discovered the power of the movie of Citizen Kane. There was no better month in the history of movies than June of 1982. Now, I say that because there were so many great movies that I wanted to see. And my friends could not be bothered. And with my group of friends, I tried to talk about these movies. And no one had heard of a couple of those films. I would get so passionate about something like Pulp Fiction that I would start fights with my friends. My friends were like, it's just a movie. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not just a movie. It's so much more than just a movie. That period of time was when I rode my bike to see movies like Poltergeist, Star Trek II, E.T., Blade Runner, The Thing. So I didn't know that rereading the same book 10 times was weird. I didn't know that watching a movie over and over again was weird. And I knew I had to find my crew, and eventually I did. And, and then when I finally started to gain some social skills over a decade or so, it's very hard for me, um, the people that I became friends with were actually people that were into that kind of thing. It started to attract friends to me that had at least similar reactions to film, that it wasn't just something to do on a Saturday afternoon. That was the first time where it was like, oh, these are my people. We'd go to movies, and then after the movie, we'd go to Bob's Big Boy because they had the breakfast buffet all night. And sitting around watching movies for seven or eight hours wasn't considered a waste of time. It was considered being studious. That's when I realized I was different than everyone else, all the cool kids and the jocks and all that. I couldn't talk movies with them but I could with my nerdy movie friends. And uh, it, was, it was such a great thing to find your tribe. And that was when I started to think, you know, maybe it's okay if I don't play these sports games with my friends because I'm a, I'm a lot happier going to the movies. I'm a lot happier sitting, waiting for the movie to start. I didn't care what the show was. I just wanted to be in that theater when the lights went down and the music started. And I was like, this is my jam. This is my jam. Movies really are kind of my church. They're my comfort. My church, my synagogue, my temple was the movie theater. And the idea that you're in a theater with 350, 450 other people, but you are having a personal moment with this thing that's 25 feet wide on the screen is crazy. I can't imagine a world without film. I can't imagine wanting to live in that world. It really wasn't until probably in my 20s that I went 
oh, the way I think about these things and the way I break them down, and I, that's maybe the big part, is that part of what I was doing that I didn't understand was that I was trying to figure out how it works. When we got out of Jurassic Park, The Lost World, like most people watching Lost World, a little bit disappointed. And like my best friend from high school was like, I didn't like that movie, it was boring. And my sister was like, it was fine. And I was like, I really liked it. I thought it started strong, but at the in the middle of the movie, they did this thing with the character and it wasn't that great. But then you get to where the truck kind of goes over the edge and Julianne Moore falls on the glass. And it's like, oh my God, this is what I've been waiting for. This is like classic Spielberg. This is what I wanted. But I just felt like you didn't really care about the characters. And then by the time you get to the middle of the movie, there's this plot thread that doesn't come together and this plot thread that doesn't come together. And I think I have some solutions. If you had done this and you had done this, it would have been a lot better. I think what made me realize that I was different was that all felt just normal, you know? <laughs> it was just like, this is what I want to do. And I had no idea what that meant, that young. And my dad kind of looked at me afterwards. We got home, he goes, you know, you should probably do this for a living because not everybody watches a movie that way. And I was like, what are you talking about? It was obvious. When I saw Star Wars, the special edition in the movie theaters, It'd probably be 1995's Toy Story. My first mind-blowing experience in the movie theater was probably Mad Max Fury Road. 2001 A Space Odyssey, a couple of years ago. Uh, and I can remember sitting on the couch with my siblings around and my father, and we were watching Back to the Future, all huddled around this little set. I was totally taken aback by the score, the sound, and just how scary the film is. My most mind-blowing experience was the full Monty. 97, I was in the British cinema, and we all stood up and applauded at the end. No one shows emotion in British cinema apart from them. I couldn't believe what I just saw on screen that I just wanted to watch it over and over and over again. I've uh, seen Optimus Prime and the rest of the Autobots in Transformers. My imagination just exploded. Mr. Outlaw, John Roca, I'm on your side on that one. First time going to the movies by myself, I went to see The Sting. When I was 13 years old, and uh, Steve, you might know this place, it's the Cinearts Dome Theater in Pleasant Hill, California. And uh, I remember seeing Jurassic Park opening day there. I remember when the uh, DeLorean took off at the end and flew around and turned back and flew towards the camera. It absolutely blew my mind. And that final sting, it just completely blew my mind. I just love the movies. I am managing a bookstore. I am in the Army Reserves. I am trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. I know I want to be an actor. I know I want to study film, but I don't know where I, I don't know where I fit. And then I went to see Fincher as seven. And I remember that I could not catch my breath, that I left the theater and I was walking around the mall, once again, like a zombie, in a daze, and I could not catch my breath. And I just remember walking around going, I have to do this, even if it kills me and I end up homeless or whatever. I can't keep living this life that I'm living now of possibly doing it. I have to live this life where I do do it. That was the movie that absolutely changed me and made me realize I had to go do it. I had to do this. You know. Pulp Fiction, it was this. It was drawing the rectangle and the rectangle coming up on screen. And it was a different kind of visual language than anybody else had ever done. And suddenly I was like, movies are so much more. Going to see Fight Club was such a transformative experience because its levels of reality and the way it plays with the filmmaking convention and yet manages to propel you on this incredibly complicated and entertaining story you are seduced by Tyler Durden and by everything that's happening. And as you're doing that, 
what Tyler Durden is doing is transforming into something that's really wrong. And so it manages to suck you on board to a thing that actually you really shouldn't like in the long run. And that just just blew my mind that someone could conceive of that kind of a film. Les Miserables. There is a moment where, spoiler alert, um, Javert <laughs> commits suicide and the bridge flies up behind him. It was so real and it was so beautiful that I just sat there. That was the moment that I actually remember thinking to myself, if I could make one person feel the way that I felt in that moment, that it would all be worth it. The most mind-blowing movie experience for me was at Comic-Con in 2010. I wound up getting us advanced screening tickets. It was one of the first times they were showing the movie for Scott Pilgrim. Oh, oh my God. So the screening of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. That was one of the best moments of my movie going life. That was a top five, not just a Comic Con experience, that was a top five movie going experience. Oh, that screening was absolutely fantastic. It was orgasmic, that screening. Uh, if you weren't there, I feel bad for you because that screening was everything. Jesus Christ, I get it. I, I wasn't there. And I got to hang out with Anna Kendrick at the after party, so not too shabby. Stop rubbing it in, okay? I, they said invite your 10 best friends. <laughs> I had to actually go, this is so embarrassing. I had to go look it up, like, look it up to see what it actually meant. Because, you know, you're just like, I don't know. Is that it? Like, I'm sure somebody that likes movies. Maybe it's something deeper than that. What does it mean to be a cinephile? That is a loaded question. To me, being a cinephile has no gender, has no language, has no country. Well, I guess if we just break down the word, it just means a lover of film. Art is subjective, and movies are art, so that makes movies subjective. I don't think you have to be an expert. I don't think you have to have studied things, and I think everybody comes to movies differently. Most people come into a film, and they're going to see a movie or watch a TV show or whatever to be entertained. My entry point into film was entertainment, is I wanted it to be fun. You know, a casual film goer will just watch a film, let the whole thing wash over them, and then decide I liked it or I didn't like it. I had fun or I didn't have fun. But then there are these small group of weirdos where that's not enough. But I think a cinephile to me is someone who understands the basic foundation of film and how it works and appreciates it and is always in awe of it. It, it, it gives you the chills. It gets under your skin. It makes you wide-eyed with joy and intrigue. So many things in my life has changed, but my love for film has really been a constant, and it's really only gotten wider and deeper. A cinephile is someone who will dig deeper. You know, to be a cinephile means looking a little bit deeper. You know, maybe they get obsessed about how the special effects were made, or maybe they want to look into the background of all the Star Wars characters, or maybe they want to know about the history that connects to the film. It's that desire to go deeper for me that makes a cinephile. And it's something I didn't do until I started listening to this podcast. That desire is what the show is based on, and I think that's what our audience is based on, is people who go, all right, I love this movie. Now I want more. You are not just granted cinephile status because you you like a lot of movies. It's more a matter of, can we have a conversation about the nuance and the complexities and the levels of a film? That's a cinephile to me. What's great about 
the cinephiles is they've created a safe place, if you will, where you can just come and talk about something that you adore, even if the thing that you love is not perfect and what in life that we love is. You have an experience that transcends what you're seeing on the screen. You love that about the film because you're, it, it, it's showing you something different. And I can take it a different way watching it when I'm 15 and then take it a different way when I'm watching it when I'm 30 and then take it a different way when I'm watching it in my 60s. Whether you be 15 years old or 85 years old, if you can have a conversation about a movie and show me a different way to look at it uh, and challenges me and nothing excites me more than that. I think those of us that are cinephiles revel in that. What I think it means to be a cinephile is to show love and appreciation for the entire art form and all its variations. You're watching cinema to make yourself understand that movies are a global thing. I have a friend who works in costume design. She produces costume awards. And when she sees a movie, she totally responds to the look. She knows every person who's designed every movie. I don't know that, um, but I know story structure uh, and writing a lot better than she does. And I have friends who have an eye for cinematography that I will never have. No matter how much I watch, no matter how much I study, no matter how much I learn, I'm never going to learn enough to be the ultimate cinephile. And I know people who just love going to the movies. They don't necessarily love to critique it the way that I do or that Steve does or that John does, but they just love movies. And I think all of those things count as being a cinephile. A cinephile is somebody who can tell you who they are by the movies that they love. But surrender yourself over to the film. Give yourself over to the film. Let yourself be consumed by the cinematic experience. That's a cinephile. Hi, John and Steve. It's Laura from Sydney here. Congratulations on your 200th episode. Uh, the Cinephiles was the very first podcast I ever subscribed to, and it still remains my favorite today. I told this to John and Steve from almost from the beginning that I, I came as a friend, but I stayed as a fan. I've had conversations with a lot of people over the years, but I have never, I have never ever had the kind of in-depth conversation about a film like I've had on The Cinephiles. Like nothing tops the joy and the fun and the knowledge and the discovery, the overall experience of doing a conversation about a film, doing a deep dive, and for however long it takes. One of the few podcasts where uh, you discuss a film in more time than it takes to watch the movie. To take a film like Star Trek The Motion Picture and divide it into two parts? No one else would do that. Only the cinephiles would do that. Steve and John allow for discussions to go as long as they feel they need to. And look at things in a way where it goes beyond just like the broad strokes of, I liked it, I didn't like it. It's every single beat by beat so that you get more into, I think, what the storyteller's intention was. I feel like I'm having a conversation with Steve and John, uh, which is easy for me to imagine because I've had many conversations with them. But also, I'm also learning things. It's a great podcast because you get to really sit there and go through the film and see what works, what doesn't work. So when you get to those final thoughts, you've gone on the journey with both Steve and John, which is what I love. And it really makes me appreciate film and storytelling even more. 
I really like how you guys go deep into the nitty-gritty technical aspects of the film. It's fun because even as a guest with two people that you've known for a long time, talking about a movie that you've loved, you still learn a lot and you come away seeing the movie a little bit differently. I love when Steve and John respectfully disagree about something. And even though both hosts uh, might dig their heels in and they're not going to give an inch of ground, there's an underlying respect uh, that keeps the debate healthy. We were having a conversation about Star Trek The Motion Picture, and I can't remember the specific of it, but here I've seen this movie, Star Trek The Motion Picture, you know, so many times, not as many times as Wrath of Khan, um, but... John said something that just made me go, I never thought about that. I forget what it was, but I'm sure he'll remember it. And the reason I ask this is because it's very similar to shooting one pilot and shooting a second pilot. Oh, that is a great point. To me, Khan feels like the second pilot of the original motion picture. Okay, let me just pause and just say, Every once in a while, I earn my money on the cinephiles. Fucking bravo, Johnny. That's what I thought as I was watching this. I was like, this feels like a second pilot. It's a do-over. It's a do-over. That is a brilliant, no, a brilliant analogy. That is so great, and it never occurred to me, and you, th- that is really good. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Wow. Great, great analogy. Yeah. Well, but- thanks, everybody. I'm going to leave now. <laughs> Mostly when I think of episodes that are my favorite, they're my favorite because I wish I was on them. <laughs> Now you've asked what my favorite episode is, and that's like asking me what my favorite movie is. It's a really complicated question. John and Steve have covered the greats. They've covered the classics. They've covered the cults. I love them all, but if I'm going to pick them, pick one, it's going to be Empire because that's my favorite movie of all time. What's your favorite episode of The Cinephiles? Uh, if I had to guess, I'd say probably The Shining. For me, Chinatown, and for my wife Abby, that Charlie Chaplin Modern Times one. I think one of my favorite episodes that I went back just recently and listened to was the Karate Kid, the moment where Mr. Miyagi has has passed out. After he's put Miyagi to bed and he's seen the Congressional Medal of Honor and all these things, Daniel starts to leave and then turns and bows. It didn't register with me the importance of that, but then hearing Steve talk about it, what a powerful moment that was. One of my favorite episodes is when Eric Rogers was a guest and did Jaws. But my favorite is probably Jaws. And from Steve's, you know, really insight into sharks with his documentaries. And Eric Rogers was just a fantastic guest. There are a lot of people that do what I do, which is watch the movie and then listen to the episode. But there's also a lot of people out there that listen to the episode and watch the movie. And there have been times where I've been tempted to watch the movie, listen to the episode, and then watch the movie again because you guys bring up things that I don't necessarily notice, even though I'm actually nine times out of ten watching the movie with the cinephile sitting there with his keyboard typing everything. So that would probably be my favorite episode of the cinephiles, although none of them are bad. I mean, you guys are awesome. When you're watching a film like 2001 A Space Odyssey for the 30th time and you're getting something new about it that you didn't see the other 29 times... I think that one of my favorite episodes is definitely uh, Shawshank Redemption. I have the Gladiator episodes and the Ben-Hur episodes. I listened to them while I was at work, working night uh, night security at a big resort. They also got me through a lot of stuff when I was going through. My favorite episode is the Back to the Future double episode. It's the Proto Geek Buddies episode. I love it. I listen to it again and again all the time. Back to the Future. 
information I just didn't know about, and that's what I love about the cinephiles, it's the information you just keep giving us. Thanks very much. You know, the knowledge and the and the research that Steve and John bring to the show, you know, it's, it's really remarkable, and it helped me to appreciate that movie, Shawshank, on a completely different level than what I ever had. But there are a few that really stick out for me. I love the Civil War episodes. I really, really loved the uh, Monty Python Holy Grail episode. Uh, I absolutely loved the Jaws episode, but I think my favourite has to be A League of Their Own with Kay Cannon. You know, one of my favourite movies of all time, I think a lot of people will say this, is Citizen Kane. And their, their Cinephiles episode on Citizen Kane was the Citizen Kane of Cinephiles podcasts. <laughs> Favorite episodes is tough because honestly, they all, I think they're all good. I do. I've never felt that we've done a bad cinephiles episode. You can say in comparison, it's not as good as others for certain episodes. Absolutely. But I don't think I've ever felt walking away from a cinephiles episode um, that we made a bad episode. The first time that I came in to do cinephiles, I felt like the kid that didn't fully do his homework. Being on this podcast is fantastic because I get to talk about great movies, but it is also nerve-wracking, beyond honest. John and Steve were like, we want to have you come on. We want to talk about Superman. And I'm like, oh my God, Superman. Like, I love Superman. He's my favorite superhero. I love that movie. I've seen it a thousand times. I am in. And I showed up and we sat down and I instantly realized that I was out of my depth. The first time I came in, I was deathly afraid because I know what a great conversationalist Steve is. I know that John knows so much about movies and is, has a very big personality and I wanted to be able to, to hold my own. And even on days where I'm not feeling it or I'm tired or I had a big night the day before and I'm not feeling my best, by the time you get there and sit down, you just get swept up in the moment and you get so excited about their excitement that honestly, before you know it, it's done. Uh, and you're like, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready to go more. Like I can talk more about this. And they're like, no, no, we got enough. Like that's a really long podcast. And you're like, all right, well, you know, next one, I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I'm available. If I could have a conversation with John and Steve every week on the Cinephiles, I would, I would make the time to do it. When, when Steve and John had first started the Cinephiles, and they discussed, hey, we'd love to maybe have you on. Do you think? Can you think of any movies you might want to have on? I think I sent Steve a list of like probably a hundred films. I thought I was being helpful, and then I don't. Re I think Steve was kind of like, could you, could you maybe narrow it down a little bit? Wow, the next movie, the next movie. I should have, I should have had that prepared. It was a feeling you were going to ask. You know, a movie I fucking love that I don't know if you guys have done is Dangerous Liaisons. Much to John's chagrin, I would like to do the Goonies. I'm telling you, you guys are going to run out of movies, and we're we're going to have to do one that I know Steve will not be able to watch. Like, The Room. I am still 100% committed to getting them to cover both Ewok movies, uh, Caravan of Courage, and Battle for Endor. We'll see if that actually happens. Um, um... Dirty, manipulative John Malkovich. I want to see Greg Close getting all kinds of closey. I want baby Uma Thurman all up in it. Um, 
I think if we could actually get John to sit down and watch it, I think he would actually like it. Because as bad as those movies are, they are part of the Star Wars canon. Hmm. Well, all right. How about a movie that was the Citizen Kane of the 21st century? And yes, I'm talking about The Social Network. The Social Network is a movie I absolutely love to pieces and the parallels between the social network and citizen kane should be obvious they're not but when we make them obvious on a future episode of the cinephiles it's going to blow a lot of people's minds and i can't wait to have that conversation with steve and john every time i think about it i'm just we've only scratched the surface and certainly our fans remind us all the time of movies like, how is it possible that you didn't do this or didn't do that? It's like, you're right. I want to dive back into classic films more deeply. We haven't dug into the noirs, you know, movies like Double Indemnity or Maltese Falcon. The African Queen with Humphrey Bogart and, and Catherine Hepburn. Bridge on the River Kwai is one of my absolutely favorite films. Bridge on the River Kwai is one that uh, Steve and I have talked about many, many times. Guys and Dolls and My Fair Lady and American in Paris. And some of the Fred Astaire stuff, right? We haven't done uh, uh, Swing Time. We haven't done Top Hat. We've only done really one true silent film, which is The General from Buster Keaton. F.W. Murnau's Last Laugh is one of the most shattering films I've ever seen. I mean, if we really want to go super deep, Battleship Potemkin, Ivan the Terrible. We've only done one Billy Wilder. We've never done an Ernst Lubitsch. French cinema, so like 400 Blows or Italian, like eight and a half. And of course, the big one that is the most requested that I promise we haven't forgotten about, we're not ignoring, and that is The Godfather 1 and 2. We will do them, cinephiles. I absolutely promise they are going to happen. And uh, I'll come back for anything. Except for, like, French movies. <laughs> what makes the cinephiles unique is the way that you guys tackle... Uh, the passion of all the characters and their themes, which is often more on John's side, I find. And then Steve gets into the analysis and the techniques of how did we convey that emotion. Uh, and I find that to be a wonderful interplay and something that really just works perfectly between two hosts better than I've seen in basically any other podcast. The thing that I love about John and Steve is that both of them can look at negative things positively and can look at positive things critically. I think one of the things that makes The Cinephiles a really, really great podcast about cinema is that Steve and John are so completely different. And you gotta be, because the more each person brings to the table, the better the art will be. John might be the heart of Cinephiles more, and Steve might be the head. You know, if you have some person who's a left brain kind of person, another person's a right brain kind of person, then they're both going to be one perfect brain. This is the granddaddy of all the questions, and that is, what, what does Steve Morris bring to the cinephiles? That is a loaded question. <laughs> because sometimes I feel like Steve's married to me and to John and to the show. <laughs> but mostly it's really good because um, I see how much joy it brings to Steve. Well, I'll tell you, we wouldn't have a cinephile show without Steve Morris. That's the first thing, because Steve Morris uh, was the one who uh, made this happen. Steve's the intellectual. 
I mean, Steve is the critical thinking guy, and you can hear how much he, he enjoys something or how much he loves a piece of film, but then he's able to go in and not only tell you why he loves it, but he has the technical specs <laughs> to back up his love. Steve brings um, not only his background as a director, but just the insane amount of research that tells us things we really never knew. And really the knowledge of the technical expertise you need to create a great film. For Steve, it's probably more of a beat by beat, scene by scene word conversation because that's how Steve looks at movies. He's a writer, first and foremost. He's an editor, probably second, I would say, and a director, third. And the editing that happens on the show that makes fans of so many people who discover the show for the first time is all down to Steve Morris and his idea of how he wanted the show to be. My favorite thing about the Cinephiles is actually the editing. Uh, it's so cool when you're in the room talking about movies and Steve kind of says, and then we talk about this and Doc Brown does this or the Beast does this and then there's an enchantment. But when you actually go listen to it after the fact and the editing and the dialogue and the music and everything and the way that like the conversation seamlessly moves in and out of the actual movie and the actual dialogue, it makes it magical even when it's something that you already sat and had a two-hour conversation about. All of that is distinctly important and essential to make the cinephiles what it is. He spent so much of his life making all this great stuff that not, all, not as often as he would like was seen by enough people. And this is one of the few times in his life that he's doing something that he is intensely passionate about. He takes our show... Um, so deeply inside of him and it's so important to him and it's actually getting heard and and it's also making a difference you know i love when i get to hear the the little notes and stuff that people sometimes write sometimes really amazing ones of like you know you saved my life kind of things my my favorite moment of being on that show if steve morris is still laughing I know things are going okay. That's that's number one. All of you who listen to the show have gotten to know John Roca over the years. But what you don't know, or what maybe some of you can't see, is just how goddamn good he is at this job. And John Roca, and I know this because I've known him for a very long time, has a lot of hot takes and a lot of opinions, and also knows a ton about movies. The first thing is just the sheer quantity of shows he records. It just blows my mind. I do one show a week. I'm exhausted. John does three, four shows a day. And he comes in with the same spirit, the same intensity, the same professionalism, and the ability to articulate something important over and over and over again. The way John approaches the cinephiles is the way that I feel like he approaches almost everything he does in life, and it is with red-hot passion. What John brings to the table is something a little more personal. I mean, I think John is like me. He's an enthusiast. Not just aesthetically, cinematically, stylistically, what makes a film work, but he'll get more into what made it work for him. John just feels and what he feels he wants you to know and then john brings you know not only so much emotion and uh his own background but just at the perspective of an actor and i think john first and foremost comes out of acting he connects with films and stories 
on a, on an emotional level. I love watching John get emotional about something because he he leans forward. He really wants you to he wants you to understand what he's saying, but more importantly, he wants you to feel what he is feeling. Cobb is so determined to play it that way, so determined to be to be right in this moment for his own reasons. That when the I'm sorry. When that moment happens and he rips the picture of his son, which always makes me cry. Yeah. There's such a power in that because I know that anger. I've known men like this. I've been a man like this. You know, you know what? You're right. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm no, not trying to be right. No, it's just, I'm just my about own it. point of view. Well, because, you know? I mean, this is, and again, it's why I think this is good, you and I doing this show together. Mm -hmm. But you expressing how you felt, if you, if you felt that, you're right. Mm -hmm. That was a real lesson for me because when the show is good is when John and I are both expressing real truth. And so I've always gone like, I gotta work up to his level. If he's gonna bring it and everything that he feels into an episode, I gotta bring the same thing. And that challenge has made me a better podcaster, but it's also made me closer to understanding my own emotions and being more comfortable with expressing them. So, you know, I just feel really lucky to have him as my partner on the show. Most guys who grew up in the 80s kind of have that relationship with Field of Dreams. And hearing Steve and John get emotional about it gets, uh, even thinking about them getting emotional gets me emotional. <laughs> um, I mean, culminating with, you know, Dad, do you want to have, have a catch? Like, oh my God, just rips, rips my heart out. And the moment, uh, now I'm going to start to cry because I have to say the line. Mm. He said, as he starts to go, he says, Hey, Dad, you want to have a catch? Hey, Dad? You want to have a catch? That line has broken so many people watching it, and certainly it broke me when I watched it again. It just uh, broke me for the show. It just ago. broke you, right? <laughs> the great thing about listening to Steve and John talk about a movie is I want to go watch that movie right after I finish the podcast. The Cinephiles may end up being the greatest legacy that I'm a part of that I leave after I leave this earth. I can't take any greater pride than that uh, in The Cinephiles. So that's it. That's 200 episodes of The Cinephiles. <laughs> we want to thank all of you for all of your support throughout this show there would be no cinephiles without you and of course we want to thank all of our special guests for all of the podcasts they participated in and particularly for willing to be on camera for our 200th episode absolutely can't thank them enough for taking the time you know uh it, they take so much uh time to be a part of the show to have them also be a part of this 200th episode documentary really means a lot to both of us and certainly to you fans i mean so i see so many of you whenever steve's on camera on assorted other shows going oh is that what steve looks like well the shoes on the other foot for me at least and saying oh is that what that fan looks like is that what that longtime fan looks like so it's been a joy to see the faces put to some of the names i've seen before as fans of our show uh and thank you all so much for being with us for 200 episodes and beyond we're not stopping this show anytime soon and there is a plethora a plethora of movies that we are going to get into as we keep going into the future and we can't wait to dig into all those movies for 100 200 300 
Who knows how many more episodes we'll have, but we'll be back every week with another great movie on The Cinephiles. Two hundred episodes, you guys! Bravo! It is an honor to be in your company talking about movies on the Cinephiles. I mean it. Congrats on two hundred episodes! Uh, this is my favorite podcast. Two hundred episodes—that is a crazy, crazy accomplishment. And there are definitely certain movies that I'm waiting for that ten-year mark to hit, so I can hear you guys talk about them. Thank you to Mr. Steve Morris and Mr. John Roca. You guys are awesome, and. Uh, Here's to another 200 episodes, so good luck to you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of it, as often as you've let me be a part of it. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity. Can't wait to see the episode. Very honored that you guys uh, are, are letting me be a part of it, so thank you. Thank you, guys. Congratulations on 200 episodes. Um, once again, congratulations. Uh, see you later. All the best. Thanks. Best to both of you. And I look forward to 200 more episodes. And, uh, and you guys are awesome. 